Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce everyone to Laura Cray. Laura, welcome to the conversation. Oh, thank you, Melissa. I'm really excited to be here. So I am going to step through Laura's bio firstly, just so everyone's got a bit of an understanding about you and why I'm so excited to have you as part of our conversation. So um, Professor Laura Cray is the Ned and Carol Speaker Professor of Leadership at the Walter A. Haas School of Business, University of California at Berkeley, where she's been on the faculty since 2002. Cray is an expert on the role of gender stereotypes and mindsets about gender on workplace behaviour, including negotiations, leadership and ethical decision-making. Her work's been supported by the National Science Foundation and has been recognised with multiple best research awards from the Academy of Management and International Association of Conflict Management. Her research has been featured in a wide range of media outlets, including Washington Post, New Yorker, National Public Radio, Harvard Business Review, New York Times, Financial Times, Slate, Forbes, Huffington Post, Daily Beast, Scientific American, Business Week, and Time.com. In 2008, Laura founded the Women's Executive Leadership Program of Berkeley Executive Education, and she's been the faculty director ever since. Currently, she's the faculty director of Berkeley House's Center for Equity, Gender, and Leadership, and editor of the Research in Organisational Behaviour Journal. In 2018, she was elected a fellow to both the Association for Psychological Science and the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. From 2017 to 18, she was a fellow at the Centre for Advanced Study in the Behavioural Sciences at Stanford University, where she launched her current research on debunking common myths about the gender pay gap. Oh, Laura, so much for us to get into. <laughs> Thank you for that introduction, Melissa. Laura, can I ask, for people in the audience who haven't had the pleasure of coming across you before, can I ask you to start and perhaps take us through um, who you are and, and why you are who you are? Absolutely. Yeah. So what you see is what you get. I am um, an academic by training, and that's where my passion lies. Um, you know, I've always been a student since, you know, I started kindergarten and went straight through from undergrad studying psychology at the University of Michigan and towards the end of my um, undergraduate studies started thinking about what I wanted to do next and I uh, just remember seeing one of my professors, Professor Frank Gates, who is, uh, I had a couple classes with him in judgment and decision making. I saw him walking across the center of campus, they call it the Diag, and I, there was just something I saw and I said, I want to do what he's doing. 
And I reached out to him and, uh, you know, he got me, uh, gave me an opportunity to start doing research. Um, and I, you know, started working with other faculty as well. And I just knew it was exactly what I wanted to do. And so then I applied to graduate school and uh, decided to go to the University of Washington. And so went straight through from undergrad to graduate school and um, at an absolute like blast in, in graduate school. I knew it was, you know, I've always loved school and, um, you know, on top of just what I had experienced up until then in school, which is, you know, book learning, this was like, what questions interest you? And how can we figure out how to answer those questions in the most rigorous and, you know, sort of convincing way? And so, I got my PhD in psychology. And then from there, I, um, you know, I did dabble in working in tech um, while I was finishing up my PhD. And um, while it was a great experience, it also just further confirmed for me that I actually like college campuses and, and whatnot. So even though I love Seattle and being there, I said, if I want to pursue this track, I need to you know, relocate. And so I went and did a postdoc at Northwestern University at the Kellogg Graduate School of Management. So that is where I learned to be a business school professor. Okay. And, um, you know, and I started teaching a class on negotiations. And that was really um, my first, you know, sort of foray into, you know, training business students, future business leaders, and also starting to get a glimpse of some of the gender dynamics that play out in the classroom as well as in the workplace. What led you into the negotiation space in the first place? Well, some of it is as a social psychologist, there's a high demand for, you know, decision-making, you know, negotiations is really joint decision-making, right? And so there's so much psychology to it. So as far as you know, teaching in a business school, it's a common class that psychologists teach. And so, and my, one of my mentors from graduate school, Lee Thompson, you know, she had uh, you know, taught me about, about negotiations and she was a, you know, very prominent negotiation scholar. So it just sort of, it wasn't something planned. It was an opportunity that I was given and I ended up, you know, really being fascinated by it. And now, you know, 24 years later, I'm still studying it. Fantastic. So, um, so there you are, you're teaching negotiation. How did that path lead you, um, you know, more broadly to where you are today, where there's a real gender lens on all of that? Yeah, so um, it's sort of a funny story, because, you know, so, you know, kind of broader background information about me is I grew up in a family with um, four girls and all within six years of each other. And I'm the third in line. And so, you know, my mom and dad, very traditional, you know, sort of intact family, my dad, you know, the breadwinner, but because I didn't have brothers and there were so many of us, you know, girls around, I, I just, I had no awareness whatsoever of like gender being an issue, you know, out there. And, you know, some of my friends who grew up with brothers, they'd say, well, he got to stay out this late and I had to be home by this time. And I just didn't have any experience with any of that. So it wasn't even on my radar at all to think about gender. And, um, and it was actually a student in the class the very first time I taught it where, you know, a lot of the textbook learning about negotiations is about these heuristics and biases and, you know, people can be overconfident or, um, you know, anchoring on a particular reference point without considering other reference points. And so it's just very, you know, sort of 
this is how the brain works and this is how we interact with other people. And a, a woman in the class raised her hand and said, you know, Professor Cray, could you, um, this is all well and good what you're teaching us, but I'm just curious, what difference does gender make? <laughs> I was like deer caught in the headlight because I literally hadn't thought about it. I'm, you know, embarrassed to say, um, but it was also part of the zeitgeist of the time because, you know, so what did I do in that moment? I said, that's a great question. Here's what I'm going to ask you all to do. I want to know what you think the role of gender is. So I'm going to give you a homework assignment and I want you to write an essay on the role of gender and I will compile it and we'll have a conversation about this in the next class. So I stalled effectively. And then after the class, I you know, have a number of colleagues around who were mentors and experts in negotiation. So I did go up to one of my uh, male mentors, a very famous negotiation scholar. And I said, you know, do you ever get this question? Like, what do you, how, do you, how do you answer it? And his answer was, I say, that's not an interesting question. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, hmm, okay. Um, and, you know, I think I just knew intuitively what he didn't finish saying is it's not an interesting question to me. Yes. Right. And so from there, I thought, hmm, I think it, you know, so then we compiled the data from the class and found that, you know, basically there's a stereotype that exists that suggests, you know, people think that men are better negotiators than women. And right around that time, uh, Claude Steele, who actually was the first psychologist I ever took a undergraduate social psychology class with at Michigan, he had since moved to Stanford and he was doing this great work on stereotype threat, mm -hmm. which is this idea that when you are um, a member of a negatively stereotyped group, whether it be, you know, women in math, here we have women in negotiations, you can, you know, racial stereotypes about academic achievement, just being, knowing that that stereotype exists can create a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because in that moment of, let's say, let's say we're talking about gender and math. Here I am taking the really difficult math exam that's gonna get me into a top graduate program. If I'm in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I know women can't do this or people think women can't do this. At a minimum, it's taking up some of my cognitive energy right? My working memory capacity is being stressed so that instead of just focusing on the math problem in front of me, I'm thinking about, oh my gosh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, sort of um, choke and I'm going to prove this stereotype correct. And so that in and of itself can lower my expectations. It can, you know, lead women to give up more easily. So, you know, there's this dynamic and I was able to show in, laboratory experiments that, you know, when people, when you put men and women into a negotiation and you subtly, you know, sort of say either, you know, this is it, this is the negotiation that's going to prove your worth and, you know, predict how you're going to do in all future negotiations, you know, raise the stakes where the pressure is really on. That's where you get women settling for less than their male counterparts. But when that message is not elevated, right? When you say you're going to do this identical negotiation and this is a learning tool, it's a way to get experience, men and women do identically. So, wow. 
So there's something about the power of the stereotype. And, you know, obviously once you get into a negotiation, you have to ask yourself, well, where's the difference coming from? Are women not trying as hard? Are, are men, you know, sort of pushing harder? What's going on in the high stakes situation? And because we were able to capture before they actually went into the negotiation, what are your aspirations? We could see that just raising the stakes where this stereotype is in the air lowers women's aspirations. So what do people do? What do people do with that in, in sort of practical terms? Well, it's, you need to be aware that this is, you know, an additional burden that you're shouldering and then counteract it, right? So there's a whole host of, you know, sort of techniques that um, practices, you know, sort of hacks, so to speak, that you can engage in before to psych yourself up. And one of them that's very effective is just called self-affirmation, right? So just connecting with, you know, what are your core values? Right. And so if I before I go into this high pressure negotiation over, you know, salary or what have you, I'm going to remind myself that, you know, the most important value in life for me is integrity is, you know, sort of um, truth. And so, and it doesn't matter what it is. It could be my most important value is friendships and, you know, connecting to people. My most important value is, you know, economic gain, whatever it is, just reminding yourself of what that value is, um, provides a buffer against the threat in, in the environment against mm. psychological threats. So that's one example. And then another example that we actually showed in one of our first studies along these lines is, if you say, well, you know, to be a good negotiator, you need to be rational and assertive and, you know, have a high regard for your own interest. People can fill in the blanks and say, well, those are stereotypically masculine traits, right? And that can trigger stereotype threat as well. But if we add on to that, oh, by the way, men and women, you know, people think men and women differ on these characteristics. That is what that can trigger what we call stereotype reactance. And that can actually be a good thing for women where they say, wait a second, you know, you that may be, you know, you may think that's true of women, but it's certainly not true of me. It's the I'll show you effect. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, and, and I hesitate to say that because certainly we don't want to go around endorsing negative stereotypes, but you know, some of Angela Duckworth's research on grit is this idea. I mean, even Michelle Obama, you know, would talk about how that motivation to like prove you wrong, like your low expectations of me can actually, you know, sort of give people that uh, stamina and, and will to overcome the negative stereotype. So um, was that first research back in 2001, was that the, um, the battle of sexes research that you did yes what else did you find in that and I guess at the end of it did you sit did did that professor you went to ever find the question interesting oh uh, you know it's funny I confronted him about it last year or two years ago and um because I was at a retirement party for somebody and I was asked to give a presentation and I and I gave him a heads up and said you know I may 
I mean, um, I don't know if you remember this. And he was like, oh, I don't remember that. But anyway, as it turned out, that was like a day or two before I actually gave the presentation and I ended up going in a different direction. And so afterwards he came up to me and he's like, I was all prepared to like apologize and, you know, talk about how far I've come since then. And I said, well, I guess I, I let you off the hook. But <laughs> I'll take that as a yes. He did find the question interesting. That's right. Right. I think he understands. I don't know if he finds it interesting, but he understands the errors of his ways. And why you've pursued so much research in the area. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and I don't think, you know, so some of what drives me and keeps me going in this area is I don't think he's unique, right? I mean, the sense of, um, by and large, most men, I find in my experience in my professional life, are not interested in these questions. Mm. You know, it's um, disinterest, um, denial, right? So scrutinizing, you know, are, are these real findings or is, could this possibly be true? And that's just human nature. You know, that's sort of, obviously some of, some of the work I do kind of puts men in the hot seat in terms of their ethics and in negotiations and, you know, sort of how they use power and status. And so that can evoke defensiveness. Mm. Can I ask you, um, just staying on these themes, um, one of the things about negotiation that really interested me, and, and I hear people talk about it in practical terms a lot, that as a female, if you're going in to advocate on behalf of others, um, the outcomes are very strong. If you're going in to advocate on behalf of yourself, less so. That can, I mean, there, there's some, there's some research that speaks to that. Um, I, yeah, so it's, it's certainly harder for women to go in asking for a raise for themselves than to say, you know, here's my team member who's underpaid and here's why he or she deserves a raise. And that's just consistent with gender stereotypes and gender roles and how we've been socialized where women are supposed to be, you know, taking care of other people. They're not supposed to be self-interested. And so when women are advocating on their own behalf, it can certainly be more pressure filled, right? So, you know, maybe that creates stereotype threat. It can certainly, and it also can evoke backlash, right? Where the other side has a negative reaction and says, you know, this woman is difficult or, you know, I don't want to work with her. So those are, you know, sort of tricky, um, you know, tricky problems. What are the typical, um, you know, kind of uh, gender labels that you see sort of placed on women? What would you call out? Um, well, I mean, certainly backlash is, you know, oftentimes the, the B word, right? Like, you know, she's a, you know what? And, um, and you know, that women are, uh, you know, pushovers, that women are, um, you know, either pushovers are difficult, right? It's, you can't, it's the Goldilocks, right? She's not quite this, she's not quite that. You can't quite find, you know, the acceptable middle ground if if you're a woman so um those are those are you know real and also i guess in my own experience and in in the teaching that i do we also have to remember that 
some of the, the, that pushback is fleeting, right? It's, it's, you know, it's really valuable to have thick skin. Not that I want to put the onus on women to, you know, kind of have to shoulder these burdens on their own, but um, it's also, you know, you have to be prepared, right? Just like any man or a woman, here are the facts, here are the numbers, here are the comparables, here's what my next best alternative is. And, you know, you need to go in, you know, having practiced this and, and, you know, with a sense of determination and also certainly appealing to the other side, right? It can't just be one-sided, give me this, give me this. It has to be, you know, framed in such a way that makes clear to the other side how it's also in their interest. Hence the negotiation side. Yeah. So you've, you've done this initial research in 2001. Where did that take you from there? It's just been, um, you know, one, one idea after another. You know, again, my graduate training was on decision-making and I did my dissertation on, you know, how do people make decisions for themselves versus when they're giving advice to somebody else and really had no gender angle to it whatsoever. And, you know, got the question from the student, was curious, you know, was also extra curious by my male colleague's response, but I never, you know, really made a decision like I'm going to, you know, change what I'm, my focus to gender. It always just was like, well, here's one more question. And here's one, let's see if, you know, I'm interested in social cognition and, you know, the thoughts and motivations that we have that are based on our identities. And I love studying social interaction. And, you know, I've had people along the way, you know, well-meaning people say to me, you know, in my field, you will destroy your career if you keep studying gender or race, you know? So again, there's that little bit of me that I guess is a rebel, you know? And I'm like, I, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let people tell me what to do when I know what they're saying is, is just, you know, it shouldn't be that way. Right. And I have enough, um, you know, I'm willing to, to roll the dice, so to speak. I'm willing to, to assume the risks because I think if you do good work and you do it in a way that is, you know, not, um, you know, political per se, I'm a scientist, right. I'm just trying to show the evidence that, um, you know, it'll, sink in and it'll have an impact. And then as I've progressed through my career, I've had more and more opportunities with graduate students and postdocs and, you know, people who I feel really um, proud that, you know, people who along the way have had these same sorts of pushback from their male advisors. And I know that, and they have told me they wouldn't have finished their PhD. They wouldn't be in the field still if it were not for me, because mm -hmm. they came to me and I said, let's do it. You know, let's figure out a way to do it and have this be a side project, you know, maybe not your dissertation, it's a side project and see where it goes. And, you know, over the last 20 years, you know, and I don't take credit for, you know, many people doing this work, but it is just, it has become more normal. It has become more accepted. And, and so I feel good about that. Um, there's so many things about that, that I love, you know, I often think about, um, uh, you know, you can back me up on whether the research suggests this, but um, what I hear reported from women is that, you know, they have that internal voice that stops them from doing stuff. And then when that internal voice is maybe backed up by external forces, you know, whether it be advisors or whatever, who are kind of echoing it, I just sometimes sit back and I think to myself, um, 
think of all the companies that wouldn't have started or think of all the books that wouldn't have been written um, if people had kept listening to that that voice so so you know is there research on that voice well definitely I mean the voice you know the voice isn't I mean there may be individual differences in terms of the narrative that we tell ourselves but we have to remember like we are social beings that voice by and large is coming to us through our culture right and and subtly, often below the level of conscious awareness. So we think it's like, oh, this voice must be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think we all need to, you know, teach our daughters and, and everybody really to, you know, keep a journal. If you, I mean, that's the best, right? Just keep the journal with, this is what she said to me, you know, not, you know, and that way one day you will have all the evidence in front of you where you're like, and then you can share that with somebody who's junior to you. Right. And, and say, you know, you have to, you can't, I mean, you have to have a healthy detachment from other people's feedback. Feedback is great, but sometimes feedback is you have to have that own, you know, your own sense of discernment mm. and truth. And we, can we talk about the um, the women's um, executive leadership program that I was uh, incredibly lucky to be able to attend virtually. Um, I had every intention of coming face to face and unfortunately uh, things conspired against us over the last 12 months. Tell me how that program, you know, where did, where did it come from and, and what's it all about? Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, one of my main areas of research and teaching is negotiation, but, um, you know, I was teaching executives early on in my career and, you know, it's more, more often than not a room of, let's say 80% men. And, um, as I was more, you know, becoming more and more interested in this topic of gender, as it relates to negotiations, I found almost that I was almost apologetic about, bringing it up like to the class and, and trying to introduce it and have a discussion around gender. Because again, it's this denial and disinterest that, you know, men as a group have traditionally, you know, you say gender and they, everybody thinks woman, you know, it's about women where it's actually about men and women. Um, or you say feminism and people think bias. Yes. right? Like not rigorous, right? And so I'm just, but I'm trying to have a serious conversation. And even though in the negotiations, you know, literature and training, I mean, the idea of like cross-cultural negotiations, which is like people, this group of people who are this way and this group of people who are this way, you know, people love that, but somehow gender was like, I, yeah, I couldn't quite work it in edgewise. And so that's when I said, I know that people, like there's an audience for this. And so we need to create something that um, allows these conversations to happen. And so then I, you know, also thinking more broadly, it's not just about negotiations, it's about networking, it's about social influence, it's about leadership styles. And so I basically ran through my Rolodex of, you know, top, faculty at Berkeley who, you know, by and large are also research faculty. So I wanted it to be evidence-based, science-backed, cutting edge, and, you know, put this program together of a four-day experience. And, you know, when we first started it, it was, um, 
you know, we had to build demand, right? And yeah. so it would be like, okay, maybe there's some women on campus who are staff who want to, you know, attend. And, you know, we practiced, we made mistakes, we, you know, sort of refined it. And then, you know, fast forward, you know, I guess 13 years now, and it's just the most delightful experience to have people from around the globe um, coming, you know, multiple times a year and really just hunkering down and, you know, trusting us and learning from each other. And, you know, just, I forget because, you know, this is what I do and this is the research that I, I do. So I'm, I know how much, you know, gender bias is out there, et cetera. So it's really amazing to me when, you know, women come to this and often with trepidation and, I don't know if I want to be in a women's program as opposed to how's women's leadership different. And I say, these are all leadership skills that are important for everybody, but it tends, you know, we need to carve out the space to talk about gender. And um, it's just amazing to see women, quite successful women in their careers who we've all had these same, you know, sort of gender-based experiences where really for the first time, some of them are realizing that this is not personal. Mm. you know this is something that transcends all of us and it's structural it's you know baked into the system and although that can be a rude awakening and you know sort of depressing on one level it's also liberating because it's again it's not personal it's not about you it's about you know society and we have to stay in the game we have to be knowledgeable and we have to, you know, get our, get our game, game on, you know, to, uh, to navigate these obstacles. And then we need to strengthen our desire for leadership so that when we are in positions where we can affect change, we know what to do and we're ready to act. Yeah, that's very powerful. And it's interesting, um, you know, what you said about people realizing maybe for the first time how structural so much of this is including the mindset including that voice and where that's kind of come from um you know i think for a lot of people it's the first time they sit back and question that um even the fact that i'm saying to myself you're not good enough or you can't do this or people don't um people don't do those things all of that has come from a structural place yeah well absolutely yeah, right. I mean, it's what, you know, it's an accumulation of experiences and, you know, sort of how we have been treated, how, you know, any shortcomings have been interpreted. And um, yeah, so, you know, as you know, a big um, sort of theme that's woven throughout the program is one of growth mindset. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is Carol Dweck's theory about, you know, believing that people can change, right? And it's so powerful, not just because, oh, you know, keep your chin up and, and stay positive and things can get better, but also because it fundamentally changes, you know, kind of how we are and how we experience vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, for me, like teaching is something that, I mean, I'm more introverted actually. And so standing in front of a room of people and kind of um, having to command the room that that's intimidating to me and it always has been, and it, it hasn't always gone well. Right. And so, but I can, you know, 
through the growth mindset, I know, and I, okay, well, if I don't take control of the situation and work to improve it, then, you know, it's, it's just going to be more painful. It's not going to be enjoyable. And here are the things that people do to, you know, get constructive feedback and, um, and talking to, you know, more senior people, you know, who've been, who've been through the same experience and learning about how they, you know, sort of, um, worked to hone their skill. And, you know, it reminds me of just very recently, uh, a, a student of mine, a doctoral student, um, you know, we got a, we got feedback on a manuscript that we submitted to a journal and some of the feedback was, you know, quite harsh and, you know, you didn't do this and la la la. And, you know, it's just the, the, the nature of the beast. Right. But this was one of her first experiences with this. And, and she said, you know, I don't know if I'm suited for academia. Maybe I should just wrap up and, you know, go into an industry job. And, and I said, and I'll support you, whatever path you want to choose, but don't make that decision based on just this feedback. I'm like, do you want to see, I can dig up some letters I've gotten. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, you know, the way it is. So it helps, you know, so the growth mindset is actually enables people to be more um, open with mistakes they've made in the past or, you know, sort of challenges that they have faced and it gets better and here's how you do it. And, you know, after whatever, you know, your mechanism is for dealing with, you know, critical feedback, whether it be, you know, taking a yoga class, having a glass of wine with friends, whatever it is, you need to have those tools in place. And again, not internalize it. This is not feedback about whether you're a good person, whether you're a good scientist, whether, you know, you have what it takes, like we can't, you know, sort of, we, we, we take it so beyond what it is, you know, what it is. And even some of the feedback itself, it's like, okay, well, we could actually sit down and look at, you know, go line by line through this. And just because they said it doesn't mean it's true. Mm. And so I do think that there's, you know, something with women, there's some evidence of this that, you know, like, like, for example, applying for a patent and getting the, 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 getting it rejected. So men are more likely to apply again after an initial rejection, whereas women. So I think there's something that goes on probably because of how we're socialized and how people think about gender and these gender stereotypes that, you know, all it takes is one no to be like, Oh, and maybe I'm not cut out for this. That is fascinating. I mean, there's so many things in there around, um, you know, I think an absolute obligation on female leaders to not to, to make sure they, they share the kind of scars and the hard parts about their journey, not make it look easy. Yeah, that's Um, right. And, you know, that's interesting when you unwrap all of that, because you know, if we're motivated from a place sometimes of I'll show you or I'll prove or whatever, you know, people are less likely to maybe be vulnerable and kind of share that actually this was really tough. Um, Yeah. Perfectionism and females not, and it probably leads on from what you've just said, but, you know, the, um, I don't know whether this is a myth or not, enough people report it, but the fact that men are more likely to go for a job with two or three of the criteria and a female won't go even though she's got eight or nine and she's perfectly suited, what, what's going on there? Well, I mean, you know, the deeply ingrained 
stereotype that what is masculine is good. So we're operating from, you know, sort of an assumption of not good enough, you know, by and large. Um, and then, you know, I'm sure that there's some, probably you know, people have had the experiences of maybe I did try, you know, to put myself out there for something where I only had, where it was a, a stretch and somebody laughed in my face. Right? Yeah. Um, so we don't know what the experiences are that led men and women to that, um, you know, sort of reaction, but yeah. And then also, I think that, you know, because we're operating in quote, a man's world, then, you know, to be accepted, I need to check every box. And so there is, you know, and I think young girls are socialized to be perfect, right. To try and be perfect in, in appearance and, you know, obviously social media and these carefully, you know, crafted images and whatnot. So I do think there's some truth to that. And, and, you know, we all could work towards again, like here's here, here are my, here's something I'm not good at. <laughs> and just like practicing sharing that with people in a way that, you know, it's okay. The, the walls are not coming crumbling down because I'm not good at PowerPoint. Yes. <laughs> Start small, start admitting things that you're not good at that you don't actually care about, right? And, and then grow to the things that are, you know, more sort of kind of scare you. I was really not good at Canva, but I just kept applying myself and applying myself and applying myself. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, 2017, um, an article changing the narrative women as negotiators and leaders. How do we define masculine and feminine leadership traits in the first place? When people use that kind of language, what are we talking about? Well, masculine being very assertive, risk-taking, you know, um, high regard for, you know, self-interest and um, not willing, you know, willing to go in and, and tussle and, you know, sort of um, be hard charging. I think that's a stereotypically masculine way of, of negotiating and, you know, in a, in a fixed pie world, right? If we have, you know, a hundred dollar bill that we're trying to divide up between the two of us, if I'm, you know, pushy and intimidating and, you know, just stubborn, I probably will get more than 50, $50 of it. You know, it's in a very short term sort of zero sum way, but we know that negotiating, that's just a very small part of what negotiating and negotiating is also about growing the pie, finding opportunities to make, you know, sort of good trade-offs so that we can get to win-win and we both walk away with something that is important to us. And so these integrative negotiating skills require openness, you know, curiosity, asking the right questions. Um, and so some of my work actually has flipped that stereotype on its head of what it means to be a good negotiator, which people often think of these masculine traits and said, you know, good negotiators have good listening skills, are verbally communicative, are, you know, open. Just telling people that and then putting men and women into the identical negotiation that we did in those other studies, women actually outperform men. They claim more of the value when they're more confident going into it because those traits resonate with them because mm. it's a stereotype about, you know, feminine skills. You know, I, I hate to be like men are this way and women are this way. So we can say even as a stereotype, and we don't even have to connect it to gender, you know, that 
when you frame negotiation in those terms, which anybody who teaches negotiations is going to tell you, those are in fact traits that are very important, then women are like, I can do this, right? Mm. That negotiation exercise that you took, you take everyone through on the program um, is very powerful. Uh, you know, in terms of everyone learning that one sentence that you put there about negotiating is about increasing the size of the pie. Um, you know, I've, I, I would consider myself a strong negotiator um, and I got good outcomes, but there was so much more that I could have got out of that exercise. So it was um, absolutely fascinating. Gender deafness. So the women being the, the only voice in the room and not being listened or heard, you know, that, that whole concept, um, it, it's real. Um, so, I mean, has your research shown up any ways that women can deal with that? Well, I mean, it's hard, right? I mean, so some of it is, um, you know, related to, you know, ethical standards and, you know, sort of taking into account, you know, again, more than just this short term, we want to, you know, get in and get as much as we possibly can. We also want to create a relationship. We want future business. We want to have, you know, good reputation. So we get referrals, right? So this concern for everybody at the table is something that uh, just at a young age, on average, women have been socialized to pay more attention to. Part of it is just because we operate within a hierarchy, a social hierarchy, a gender hierarchy, and women tend to be, you know, lower status and lower power. And so we're going to be more vigilant to, you know, sort of other people and, and what effect these actions are having on them. And so that's actually, you know, so the example we use in that article is about Sally Krawcheck in um, City, Citibank. And, you know, she tried speaking up at, you know, around the 2008 financial crisis. They'd done, you know, sort of a deal with, clients that ended up losing them a bunch of money. And she argued that, you know, the clients had sort of been misled and that they should, they deserved a refund. And at that time, you know, no one would listen to her and she, you know, was sort of stripped of her, of her duties. And it was, you know, kind of a, a tragic ending, but she's now gone on to create, you know, women-centered investment company. And she's a very vocal sort of um, advocate uh, for women in finance and, and business. So, you know, I think there's a happy ending to it, but, um, you know, I think it's about, I mean, in my own life, right, like trying to remind people of, not, let's just not focus on what the upside gains are to taking this risky strategy, but what are the potential downside losses? And is there an alternative that's better, right? And sometimes, you know, you have to, you know, kind of say, wait a second, let's, let's think through this and not just focus on, you know, sort of confirming, you know, what we hope to be true, but also considering, you know, do we want to be on the front page of the newspaper? Do we want um, this to get out, you know, in the marketplace more generally and, and advocating for a more cautious and, you know, again, integrative approach? You know, I don't think you're going to convince people to say, give up your profits, right, in favor for, so, for someone else. But again, through this negotiation mindset of, win-win is possible, we can expand the pie. There are other ways to grow our business in ways that we can also, you know, strengthen our relationship with these other parties. Was so, it that article that talked about the UN Security Council? 
And the number of women at the table? Um, I probably did. <laughs> you have to remind me exactly. Of- so it was talking about um, that there were six out of 15 females and a lot of commentary around, um, you know, the, the, the dynamics really changed in terms of the um, collaboration and, and those sorts of things. And I guess the change when females left and the, and the balance that people actually called that change out. Um, yeah, and that's, you know, a nice, you know, sort of real world example of how, again, because of how we're socialized, um, having women at the table changes the dynamics at the table. Mm-hmm. And so there's some actual like sort of experimental evidence of this as well, laboratory-based work by Anita Woolley at Carnegie Mellon. And what she found, you know, she was studying what she called collective intelligence, right? So is there something, is there a property that emerges in teams that is, you know, some teams are just fundamentally, you know, more quote intelligent than other teams. And, you know, obviously it's not just about adding up the IQ of every person at the table, but is there a way in which teams operate that sets them up for success across a variety of different domains, whether it be negotiation, moral dilemma, brainstorming task, you know, you name it. And she did in fact find that some teams were better than others. And what the property was of the teams boiled down to how they interacted together. And so teams that on average did better, no matter what you threw at them, they did better because they had more equal participation of turn-taking. Uh-huh. So if there are five people in the, at the team, you know, on average, each person was speaking about 20% of the time. Whereas teams that did worse, you know, had five people on the team, but two people were doing 60 to 80% of the speaking. And one of the best predictors of this equal participation is the number of women at the, at the table. Wow. There's some really important stuff for leaders to be really digesting. Um, and, you know, I can think of all the people after they've seen this interview going into their workplace and kind of timing. <laughs> well, I know I want a little meter at all my meetings, right? It's like, you have spoken enough. <laughs> <laughs> have I had my 20%? Um, right as well okay so the other thing that I loved out of that article was um the it was a a survey or a question of 64,000 people yeah Yeah. and a doctrine yeah so two-thirds of people agreed that the world would be a better place if women thought like men what's what is like women how could I get that the wrong way around so if men (laughs) thought like women what what are we flip (laughs) totally what are we saying there Well, it's again, I mean, you can ask people, right, you know, we can, we all know the stereotypes, right? Like, so whether every woman is this way, or every man is this way, of course, that's not true. But if you say on average, what are women like, and people will say, you know, they're more, uh, you know, sort of accommodating, more willing to take in other perspectives, more give and take, right? Um, And, and whatnot, cooperative. Um, People say that, yes, that is what the world needs more of. not the things that we associate with masculinity. And that's not to say that we don't need assertiveness and risk-taking and all of those things, but because the world has largely been run by men 
for a very long time. And we all can look around us and see, you know, whether it's climate change or war or, you know, you name it. We say, we all know that we need to correct course. Mm-hmm. And what people are saying across the globe is that we need more of that feminine style of, of leadership. Laura, your most recent, um, well, it might not be your most recent, but it was 2021. So a gender gap in managerial span of control, implications for the gender pay gap um, is fascinating. Would you share um, that? Because gender pay gap seems to be um, an ongoing significant challenge. Yeah, absolutely. So this was... um, really exciting project for me because I was able to take real world data from a large, you know, sort of alumni sample of um, MBA graduates. Um, You know, so thinking, you know, people coming out of the identical graduate program, elite graduate program, and tracking their career progression over, you know, 20 years uh, span of time. And um, what we were able to do is identify a you know, all the things that would predict compensation. So this is, you know, a very carefully constructed detailed survey that alumni um, filled out through a consulting firm that the school um, partners with. And, you know, as you would predict, more years out, right, higher pay, you know, certain industries pay more than others, you know, there are certain characteristics of jobs. We also had information about you know, these alumni, like what job did they have before they came to business school? What was their compensation? What was their GPA? So we've got individual characteristics, job characteristics, you know, geographic location, everything under the sun that you could think of as being important for compensation. And we identified something that no one had ever really looked at before, which is, you know, the number of direct reports that people have. And what we found is that, again, even though this is a relatively homogeneous population because they all made the same decision to go to the same school and get the same education, um, men had far more, you know, almost twice as many direct reports as women did. And this started very early on, you know, they start as individual contributors and then they become managers. And, you know, women are on average, let's say, they have two direct reports, women have, or men have four, right? right? Then they move to the director level. Let's say women have six direct reports, men have nine. Mm. And this kept fanning out as they moved from director to VP, even in the C-suite. And of course, the number of direct reports you have is um, related to compensation. And so that was sort of the finding in the real world. And then I combine that real world data with experiments to try and understand, again, is there something going on? Or do people associate you know, men with leading larger teams? And why would that be so? And what are the implications? And so with Margaret Lee, a postdoc at um, the Center for Equity, Gender and Leadership, we found that in fact, you know, people think that men are better suited for leading large teams because they're more, you know, well, authority ranking, they're more directive, they're more, you know, top down. Whereas women are better suited for leading small teams because we're more communal sharing, we're more, you know, sort of democratic and, you know, everybody pitches in and, you know, um, and so, 
and then separately. So people who would never say, I think men should be paid more than women will say men are better suited for these kinds of jobs. And separately, these kinds of jobs are more difficult. And so they should be paid more. Wow, another another lens on it. Did, did um, Is there anything in there that backs up the belief that men are better leading larger teams and women are better leading smaller teams? We have no evidence of that. Um, we do, I mean, we asked them, we, you know, we have a separate project. We, you know, so there's demand side explanations and supply side explanations. The demand side being this, you know, sort of stereotypes and beliefs about who's suited. Then we're studying supply side, like do women want to lead teams as large as men? Yes. And in fact, yes. what we're finding is that they have the same aspirations as men. Okay. So they both say in a perfect world, I would have about 11 direct reports and men are actually getting to 11, women are getting to like around seven. Mm. So now again, we can take a step back and say, maybe it is harder for women to lead a larger team if they get pushback every time they try and be directive and you know, say, I need you to do this, right? So there's evidence, you know, Madupe Akinola at, at, or at Columbia and others have studied, you know, women are less likely to delegate, right? And again, you have to ask yourself, why is that? What experiences have they had along the way trying to delegate and what reactions have they had? And has that led them to say, it's just easier for me to do this myself? That's fascinating because in the first series, one of the things that came out from a lot of people was a sort of pattern of over-responsibility that women have about wanting to not have anyone else feel overburdened with work. You'd rather kind of take it on yourself and, and drown. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that that's, you know, some of, again, the perfectionism, the not wanting to impose on others. So it's so complex. And that's why, again, it comes down to I mean, we all need to be self-aware and we need to lean in, so to speak, but also we have to, as a system, be monitoring these differences and, and make sure, because it wasn't the case that leading a larger team, you know, translated into more hours worked per week. You know, it's not because you have some people helping you. you That's know? right. Really smart people. Yes. <laughs> Laura, what do you feel optimistic about? I feel optimistic that these conversations are happening and um, increasingly men are interested in, in engaging in these conversations. And I also am optimistic, you know, as, as much as, you know, this entire conversation has mainly been about women and the challenges we face. There's also just this growing, you know, sort of interest in, you know, whether you call it toxic masculinity or masculinity contests and organizations and, um, you know, just really encouraging men to be self-reflective and to question some of the cultural messages that they have about, you know, what it means to be a real man. And um, again, through the growth mindset, um, if we start thinking about growth mindsets in terms of gender roles in society, then we see you know, when men adopt a growth mindset, like there's no reason why, you know, women need to, you know, do the dishes or what have you, um, you know, all these different roles and responsibilities, men and women are equally suited to take on. And um, what we find is that men are less um, defensive, they're less, you know, sort of likely to 
rationalize inequality. And we find with the growth mindset about gender roles that women subjectively experience less like work family conflict when they mm -hmm. have a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the growth mindset, you know, expanding our conversation and being just as curious about men and trying to nudge them in, in a more healthy and productive direction, that, that gives me optimism. I love what you've said there. I've got five wonderful men in this series and uh, one of them um, operates a business called The Man Cave and they work with adolescents from 12 to 16 and they focus on toxic masculinity. And together, um, you know, he and I explored, or I asked him, what does a good man look like in 2021? Because I, I think that's difficult um, for people. Laura, the final question I ask of everybody in the series is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like? And do you think that needs to change? Well, I mean, I love the word brave and I love feminine and I love leadership. So, I mean, brave is, is really about speaking your truth, right? And that truth sometimes bubbles up and just in terms of a, a gut reaction to, you know, that doesn't ring true to me. I don't, you know, that doesn't, you, you know, you don't know everything, right? So sort of this questioning the status quo and, you know, bravery is, courage is like speaking through the heart right and um and just thinking outside the box and not being you know sort of um you know being an independent thinker and being willing to speak your truth and that's not to say that there aren't sometimes consequences and costs mm -hmm. for doing so but um not you know, sort of allowing that to, to stop you, right? Because we're, all, I mean, for me, that's like what living a life of meaning and purpose is about. And so I don't think it needs to change. I just think we need to grow that muscle, you know, and, and, and really keep it alive. I've loved our conversation and I would uh, be guessing at this stage that your decision to focus part of your work on gender has, has not ruined your career. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm still standing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely fabulous to have you join the conversation, Laura. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and, um, you know, I encourage everybody to jump into that research. There's some fantastic questions that you're asking. Thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. This is a ton of fun and I'm really so glad that you're, you're doing this and such a gift to the world. So thank you. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.